Breast milk is very, very low in iron. You're not going to be able to meet iron needs from breast milk. Iron is accumulated in utero and babies have stores that last them until the first six months of life. If you're not providing iron-rich sources in the diet at six months, your child will very quickly become anemic. Iron deficiency anemia is the most common nutrient deficiency for all kids. So whether we're talking about plant-based kids, whether we're talking about omnivore kids, this is an issue for all of them because I think sometimes what gets turned around is this idea that, oh, see, our kids need so much iron, that's why you have to feed them meat. I just want for anyone listening to say, oh, maybe I do need to be serving my baby more meat, more beef because of this iron concern. That's, that's really not the answer. That's registered dietitians Whitney English and Alexandra Caspero of Plant-Based Juniors. And this is episode 128 of the Proof Podcast. Hello, my friends. How are you doing? Welcome back to another episode. If it is your first time here with us, thank you for finally joining us, finally gracing us with your presence. I hope this is just the first of many times that we get to hang out and learn together. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Today's episode is about plant-based nutrition for babies and toddlers, a topic that I am asked about quite regularly. Are plant-based diets for children safe? Are there benefits up for grabs? What are things we need to be aware of and perhaps pay more attention to? As this is really a niche area of nutrition, I thought it would be a good idea to have Whitney English back on the show, along with Alexandra Caspero, who together are the complete plant-based juniors package or PBJ team. Both Alex and Whitney are registered nutritionists and dietitians in the United States who specialize in healthy nutrition from birth to early childhood. This is a continuation of the conversation I had with Whitney back in episode 95. While we do cover some of the same territory, we do certainly extend into new territory too. If you have young children or are planning on having a family, I think you'll find this episode super interesting and will benefit greatly by getting a copy of their new book, Plant-Based Baby and Toddler, which they have just published. They did such an awesome job with it. All right, let's dive in. This is Whitney, Alex, and I talking all things kids and all things nutrition. As always, I'll see you on the other side for a quick debrief. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, 
normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Whitney and Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having, Thanks us. For having us, Simon. It's good to be back. <laughs> it is, yes. I was about to say that. So Whitney, you've you've been on the show before, episode 95, which was a massive hit. And today we, we have Alex on, which means we now have the complete plant-based juniors team, which is great. So thank you for both joining me. Congratulations on your new book, Plant-Based Baby and Toddler. It's fantastic and really much needed at this point in time where as we know, more and more people are interested in a plant-based approach. Let's start with a bit of background here. How did the two of you meet? Why plant-based juniors and and why ultimately did you write this book? Yeah, so uh, Whitney and I met a little over a decade ago uh, at a conference. I was a dietitian. She was in school to study nutrition and we just sort of hit it off, uh, became friends Fast forward about five years or so, um, I was thinking about having kids and I was just really, you know, started to, to question, to, to look into my diet more, which I think is natural for, for any parent. Um, you know, was this safe? Was this healthy? And I was really frustrated over the lack of easy to find current evidence-based guidance in this area. Uh, Whitney was pregnant with her son and we just started DMing each other, you know, and asking things like, hey, have you seen this study or what do you think about this? Uh, and, and we just felt like, oh my gosh, for the both of us, we're both dietitians, 
to have such a struggle to figure out the answers and to have it be in this really easy to find place, we, we really wanted to create a resource for parents that was easy to navigate and answered all of the questions that, that we had um, on raising plant-based kids. Yeah, it was as simple as us kind of fulfilling our own necessity. It was amazing to us that simple questions like how much B12 should I give my one-year-old was not an easily accessible piece of information. You know, all of the small amount of resources out there telling you how to raise plant-based kids would say things simply like, you need to supplement B12, but then none of them would say how much. And we were just, we were just shocked at the the lack of information or the lack of evidence-based information. So before we kind of dig in a little bit to some of that evidence, you mentioned evidence-based there. Can you give a little bit of a synopsis of the book and the dietary pattern, the way of eating that you're recommending in the book for babies and toddlers? Sure. So the book is really what Alex and I wished existed when we had kids. It is a one-stop shop guide to everything you need to know to raise your babes plant-based or predominantly plant-based from birth all the way till about three years of age. So we cover nutritional guidance for all of the micro and macronutrients, specifically highlighting ones that uh, plant-based parents should be more conscious of. We have a whole chapter on meal planning and meal prep. So we're showing you how to take that information and put it into practice. Practice. And then we have chapters specifically uh, targeted towards each demographic. So about zero to six months, which has postpartum nutrition, breastfeeding formula. Um, we have introduction to solids. We have one to two, which is like the picky eating phase. And then looking forward towards raising a plant-based child long-term, in addition to having a bunch of recipes in there. The book is really geared towards all parents who want to get more plants on the plate. So that's really Alex and I's goal is to get more people, more parents getting more kids to eat more plants as early and often as possible. And we use a term called predominantly plant-based. And that really just means that we are an all-inclusive site. So whether you're vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, whatever pattern of eating works best for your family, we welcome you and we want to help you figure out how to raise your child with this optimal eating pattern. I love that about your book. And, and I also love how it's evidence-based. So it's very rooted in science, but I can tell that there was a very a strong emphasis or effort on making the information very accessible for busy families who, who want something that they can get through and grab a hold of and, and sort of implement quite easily. Yeah. I mean, we call ourselves nutrition nerds. And as a nutritionist, you know that we love the nitty gritty, the science. We want to know every detail about something, but not all parents want that. Most parents are busy and they want the bottom line. So we kind of tried to walk the line on that and give you as much information as our editors allowed us to keep in the book. But then we also, for every single section, have a PBJ bottom line where we sum it up in like three sentences so parents can um, quickly take hold of that information. They can skim what they need. You know, if you're like, I want to learn everything, great. We have that for you. And if you're like, I have, you know, 10 minutes right now to figure out what I've got to do, great. You can just skim it, grab the bottom line, and um, and that should, should be enough. Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of parents that can relate to to having 10 minutes, if they're lucky, to, to <laughs> sit relate. down and read. We relate. We get it, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, now, the, the evidence-based side of things is what I'm interested in and, and essentially how you've arrived at this point in terms of this being the dietary pattern that you're promoting. Why, why plant-based? 
why why is that the the dietary pattern that you're advocating for in this book? Yeah, so you know we advocate it for for several different reasons. One, obviously, we know the the benefits when it comes to human health. Uh, Whitney and I also care a lot about planetary health. You know, we're we're parents of young children, and we're we're terrified, we're we're nervous, we're scared. You know, all of those emotions uh, that come up when we think about the world that we're leaving our children, and and the beauty about plant based, plant rich, plant predominant. You know, the whole spectrum is that both of those things go hand in hand. So when we talk about the benefits for human health and the benefit for planetary health, they're they're one and the same. When we talk specifically about what are the benefits for kids, thankfully, there are also quite a bit of benefits to raising kids on a plant-rich, plant-predominant, strictly plant-based diet. The the biggest benefit is likely that plant-based kids have a reduced risk of obesity. Uh, This is likely our strongest evidence. We see this in almost every study that looks at plant-based kids. They typically weigh less than omnivore kids while also still having normal height. Uh, There was the the farm study, which gets referenced a lot because that looked at 404 mainly vegan kids, and they showed that they fell between the 25th and 75th percentile for, for weight and heights on the growth chart. Other studies uh, show that kids have lower body mass index, uh, and we also, of course, see this lower prevalence of obesity in adults, but of course, we also see it in kids as well. And this makes sense, right? We talk about plant-based diets. What are they? They tend to be lower in energy-dense foods, higher in complex carbs, higher in fiber, and then lower in ultra-processed foods. So all things that are going to help to increase satiety. And why is that a problem in, in terms of like obesity? If we were just to dig a little bit deeper on that, is, is childhood obesity a significant problem in our society and what health issues is that causing? Yeah, so obesity is on the rise globally in children and adults. Um, Right now in the U.S., about 14% of preschoolers are obese. And if we look at the data on obese kids, they're more likely to be overweight or obese in adulthood, which then puts them at a higher risk of pretty much every chronic disease that you can think of from cancer to heart disease to diabetes. So if we can target this early in life, we can hopefully prevent some of these long-term health issues. I think most of us, especially listeners of your podcast, are all familiar with the benefits of a plant-based diet for adults. That's why Alex and I went plant-based on our own long before we became parents, because we knew about the lower risk of of numerous chronic diseases that a plant-based diet carries. And while the research is not as strong or there's not as much of it in children, Knowing these small facts, like a lower rate of obesity, a higher intake of fruits and vegetables, this all points to evidence that a plant-based diet in kids likely confers the same benefits that a plant-based diet in adults would. We don't have those long-term studies at the moment, but it's very likely that it does. Yeah, I, I would also add that you know when we're talking about foods that we're feeding our children, we're really talking about the taste preferences, right? The the food culture, so much of what we accept as normal foods in adulthood is really characterized by the foods that we were given as young children. So if we can start to say, you know, let's, let's have more plant-rich foods, regardless of what else is on the plate, we know from studies that plant-based kids have higher intakes of fruits and vegetables, like Whitney just said. They get more vitamin C, more folate. They also tend to get less sweets, less salty snacks, less saturated fat-rich foods and omnivores. And if we're thinking about, you know, how do we sort of shape these palettes for all of the benefits that we know happen in adulthood, 
we think we're really setting kids up for sort of this, this optimal path. It's why one of our sort of taglines is a plant a plate. You know, we think that wherever you're coming at from your dietary standpoint, we can all try to get a plant a plate on our kids' diet. And to, to add, I guess, even further to that is that these chronic diseases that we see in adulthood, the, the foundations of these are often set up very early in life. For example, cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis, the plaque or the fatty streaks can begin in infancy or early childhood, depending on the child's diet or even the mother's diet during pregnancy. Exactly. And then there's a few smaller studies in plant-based kids showing other factors that probably put them at a lower risk of disease later in life. One of them is that plant-based kids have been shown to have lower inflammatory signaling molecules, which are obviously related to obesity and and insulin resistance. So that's a benefit. Um, And then other studies have shown that plant-based moms have a much, much lower amount of environmental contaminants in their breast milk. So one study estimated that vegan moms have I think it was one to two percent of the amount of environmental contaminants compared to omnivorous women. So there are lots of lots of little benefits out there, all pointing towards the same thing. So I think a question that some people may have is: it makes sense that kids following a more plant-based diet, be it plant-predominant or plant-exclusive, are at less risk of obesity. And Alex mentioned there, the the calorie density of the diet speaks to that in many ways and the increased fiber and whatnot. But then I guess the, the question would be around, what about the flip side in terms of, you know, adequate calories and nutrients for, for proper development? What, what does the science show? Are these children meeting the nutritional recommendations, the amount of various macronutrients, vitamins, and minerals to to grow and develop in a healthy way. Yeah, I mean, all of the all of the data that we have as far as growth and development. So let's start there. Show that that vegans are comparable to to omnivores or plant based kids. So uh, there was a study that looked at vegetarian kids compared to omnivores. We're talking about height status. They had them about two and a half centimeters for, for boys and two centimeters for women. Uh, so that's that's actually higher, so taller for vegetarians versus omnivores. And then that same farm study that I just referenced earlier had vegan kids at about 0.7 centimeters lower than omnivore counterparts. I mean, we're talking really small variances, but overall we see, you know, the same, if not perhaps a little bit higher, perhaps a little bit lower growth when it comes to plant-based diet. As far as overall nutrients are concerned, I mean, that's that's really where we try to emphasize the idea that we, we do want a, a well-planned plant-based diet because if you're just sort of saying, okay, I'm going to feed my kids whatever and, and not consider some of the, the things that we want to emphasize, right? So supplementing a source of B12, uh, making sure that we're getting enough fat in the diet, making sure we're getting enough calories in the diet for adequate growth, uh, making sure we're getting enough iron, vitamin D, et cetera, then yeah, it, it's not going to be as optimal perhaps as it could be, but all of these things you can get in, in plant foods and or supplementation. Yeah, it really depends on the study that you look at. Some of them have shown that plant-based kids have a lower intake of some of these nutrients of concern or nutrients of importance, as we like to call them more positively, um, such as B12 and vitamin D. But again, if the parents are conscious, you'll be looking out for those and supplementing them. On the flip side, plant-based kids typically have a higher intake of some nutrients as well. So you know, there's always a trade-off. Do you think that some of the conversation around stunting, because obviously childhood stunting is a real thing in, in the world, but would I be right 
this is your area more so than mine, but would, would I be right that a lot of that childhood stunting is is more in areas where there is food insecurity, developing countries, and, and thus the kind of vegetarian or vegan or plant-based diet in those populations is more out of necessity. It's not really a well-planned diet where there is an abundance of food choices. Absolutely. As Alex said before, in developed countries, we really don't see stunting. All of the studies on plant-based kids show that they have the same anthropometrics on average as omnivorous kids. So they're all attaining a normal height and weight. In developing countries, it's more an issue of malnutrition, really. Like you said, they're not eating this way because they chose to do so. Their parents aren't probably educated on the on the ins and outs of a plant-based diet. So it's understandable that that would occur. I also want to point out, not only is there not stunting in the U.S. or Australia, but what Alex had talked about before with the slight differences in height. And so we're talking about normal height, but we're talking about a difference of maybe a centimeter or two, either higher for vegetarians in one study or lower for vegans in another study. This may be attributed to certain things in the diet like milk, which have growth hormones in there that are really intended to make a baby cow grow very quickly. Because that's the main difference, right, between a vegetarian and a vegan diet um, would be an intake of, of milk and eggs. So if, if that is what's causing um, vegetarians or omnivorous children to have a slight one centimeter height advantage, what we also need to ask ourselves is, well, what could potentially be the disadvantage of this extra growth or these extra growth hormones that are producing it. And some researchers have called this into question and talked about the potential for early life metabolic programming where a pro-growth mode is is basically imprinted on our genes at an early age from exposure to all of this. And now this is just a theory, but it's it's something to consider for people when we hear, oh, what I'm afraid my plant-based kid isn't going to be tall. Well, there's a lot of things to consider when choosing a dietary pattern other than this one measure. But we do like to at least reassure parents that kids grow normally. So <laughs> Yeah, so I think that's the important thing here because you know, it does seem like there is a degree of fear around plant-based diets for children and headlines portraying it as inappropriate and leading to to poor development or stunting and, and even countries like Belgium who have sort of spoken out against it. What you're saying is that this fear is not warranted. And if, if that's the case, why are we seeing these headlines? Yeah, so it's it's not warranted. And I also just want to just really reiterate the fact that when calories, when protein, when all of the other sort of micronutrients and macronutrients that are essential for growth are met, we don't see any variance when it comes to stunting. When people try to talk about this idea of, of stunting or perhaps growth issues, we're really talking about malnourishment where they're only getting perhaps, let's say, rice, or they're really having a, a high you know, starch diet without a lot of other nutrients. It is the nutrients that they need for growth. It is not the fact that they add in, in perhaps animal products. Yes, that helps them to meet those needs, but it's because those nutrients were lacking in the diet, not because animal products were lacking in the diet. Uh, sadly, we, we do see instances where kids do suffer, right? I think we've all seen those headlines where, you know, vegan baby dies or suffers. And the reality is when we sort of dig into what actually happened, 
they were starved. It was malnourishment. It's one of the reasons that we really don't recommend any kind of raw, macrobiotic, or any other sort of restrictive plant-based diet. There is there is no need for that, and there's no research to support that that is any, any really benefit to kids compared to a traditional plant-based diet. Um, a lot of times, these are the families that are feeding their kids perhaps almond milk, instead of formula or instead of breast milk, or they'll make their own uh, formula, which is nutritionally inadequate and serve that to baby, or they're just feeding their kids, you know, fruits and vegetables, which we also don't recommend. Uh, we talk a lot in the book about this concept of well-planned diets, and this is true for all kids, right? Just because we're giving our kids cheeseburgers and chicken nuggets doesn't necessarily mean that their diet is well-planned. We need to be focusing on the nutrition uh, for, for all of our kids, um, whether we're following a, a plant-based or omnivore diet, and we really just try to talk about you know where these nutrients are coming from in a plant-based diet and how to optimize intake. Okay, and I do want to come to how to optimize it, and we will definitely get to some of that practical information. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. 
Look forward to joining you on this journey. But I'm interested, before we, we sort of jump to, to that, how is this plant-based approach accepted by your registered nutritionist and dietitian colleagues? Are they on board? Is there any backlash? What do they think of the current science looking at, at plant predominant or plant exclusive diets in children? Yeah, I think culturally there's a lot of fear, right? You know, we are so used to focusing on single nutrients instead of the big picture. And a lot of that association is with certain animal products, right? I think if you ask the average person, where does calcium come from? They'll say cow's milk. You know, we're so associated with like, oh, chicken, it's protein. And so when we take these foods off the plate, a lot of people, dietitians, pediatricians included, think, well, now what? And, you know, our sort of answer is, yes, we need these nutrients, especially during periods of growth, but that can be met by plant foods. And the research that we do have shows that it's likely optimal to be getting most, if not all, of these nutrients from plant foods. So I think there's a lot of miseducation. I mean, listen, we we love pediatricians and doctors, and we're, we're not trying to, to say that they don't understand nutrition, but the reality is, is that most of them only have one nutrition course, and they simply don't know a lot about nutrition in general, but specifically plant-based nutrition. We hear all the time from our you know, clients or from you know, community members who will say things like, my pediatrician told me that if I serve soy milk to my son, he's going to be feminized. Or you know, I have to serve almond milk. That's a much better choice than perhaps the soy milk that you talk about. Or you know, my pediatrician told me that my son has to have protein from, from animal foods in order to grow. That's really tough to go against your pediatrician when they're telling you these things, these, these trusted sources for them to say, oh, okay, well, maybe they do know. And so I think there's so much that we have to sort of like culturally shift and say, listen, this is what the facts actually say out there. If you want to raise your kids this way, we think there are so many benefits. And and that's, again, you know, really comes back to, to why we wrote this book to really sort of say, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of fear out there. Here, here are the facts. I think generally our, our colleagues and other health professionals are are open to plant-based diets and to incorporating more, more plants on the plate. But like Alex said, I don't think everyone is willing to kind of look at the research themselves. Not everyone is as dedicated to evidence-based practices as, as we are or as you are, Simon. And a lot of people, I think, just take information at face value. And so when they're told in their nutrition class that a standard USDA my plate is the way to go, that's kind of just what they go with for the rest of their life. And they don't really explore more. And unfortunately, that's that's just the way it is. <laughs> Moving forward, I guess, and you obviously feel there is more than enough evidence today to advocate for this approach, but do you wish to see more science and more studies looking at this population group? And what are some of the things that you would be interested in researchers looking at? Absolutely. As I said before, there's enough information or there's enough research out there to show that the diet is safe and likely beneficial, but there is definitely not the amount that we would like. There's definitely not the amount as there is on, on adults. I would love to see, and this is um, kind of a, a, a long shot um, dream, but a longitudinal study looking at kids that were raised on a plant-based diet. But the reality is the finances and, and the manpower that would go into that, it just, it isn't all that realistic that it will ever happen. I mean, we really don't have longitudinal studies like that on really any types of dietary 
patterns. Yeah, I mean, it would be impossible, right? I mean, if we think about conducting the the perfect study, we would ideally randomize women before they became pregnant. And then, you know, we'd have to control so many other factors and then sort of watch these kids. And, and we just don't have that. But I also want to point out, there are many populations worldwide that do eat this way. You know, it's nothing new. They're, they're not perfect studies, but we can observe a lot of things, right? We're talking about uh, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, vegetarians in Indian cultures, traditional Buddhist diets that are either, you know, fully or predominantly plant-based. And so, you know, some of these diets have been around for centuries. And so we know that there are populations who eat this way and don't have any issues when it comes to, to growth. And also, when we look at them in adulthood, we do see that they do have much lower rates of chronic disease compared to the standard American diet. You know, we can't say, yes, we have exactly the same thing when it comes to kids and we know this, but there are a lot of, you know, comparison things that we can say if we're going to be eating this way for a lifetime, what would we expect when these kids do enter into older age? And you mentioned before plant predominant, and then we've been talking about vegan or plant exclusive. Based on the research that we have today, would you say that one is easier than the other in terms of being a nutritionally adequate diet or what would be, I guess, the the motivators for someone choosing either a plant predominant or a plant exclusive diet for their family? I think it really comes down to, to what works best with you and your family, right? There are so many reasons to choose uh, a strictly plant-based diet, but I really want to also emphasize that if we switch to a plant predominant diet, we're still going to have incredible, huge benefits, right? We're talking about kids alone. The average, you know, standard American diet for kids, one in 10 get enough fiber, one in 10 get enough produce. About 60% of the diet is some type of processed or highly processed foods. It's very low in some of these plant foods that we know have incredible health benefits. So I don't want to diminish anyone thinking that they want to increase their plant intake, right? If we're switching, let's say, from a family that currently is eating 30% plant-based and then goes to 80, 90%, I mean, that's incredible, right? I really want to celebrate that. That is a huge win when it comes to the health of our children and then collectively when it comes to the health of the planet. And yes, there are so many reasons, right? You know, we have so many concerns about raising animals the way that we do. Acidification of the oceans, deforestation, antibiotic resistance, zoonotic diseases. I mean, if there's a concern that you're that you're concerned about, likely reducing animal consumption is going to be part of the problem. But we include the idea of predominance in our message because chances are, if you're vegan, you're already going to be raising your children this way, and that's awesome. We have so many resources for you to empower you and to educate you on your journey, but that population number is still really small. You know, even with the growing population of veganism that tends to increase slightly every year, it's just not moving at rates that we need it to when it comes to planetary health. And, you know, kind of like we mentioned in the beginning, whether it comes to the Eat Lancet study or the Oxford study, I mean, we need all of us eating more plant-based more often. So I think if I'm talking to a parent and they say, you know, I, I can't do 100%, but I can do 70%, I can do 80%, I can do 90%, and that feels really good to me, that works with my partner and their needs, that works with my kids' needs, that's awesome. You know, I don't think any one of us want to discourage that and say, 
well, if you're not doing 100%, then you're doing it wrong. And I think we're, we're really trying to demonstrate that you don't need animal products in your diet if you don't want them to be, but also a plant-predominant diet is still a very healthy approach and likely has the same benefits as that strict plant-based. You know, we talk about sort of that, that detail between the, the 90, 100%. We don't have a lot of data uh, when it comes to the differences there, and I wouldn't want that message to discourage anyone from eating or doing what they can. Okay, I've got two questions on that, and I, I echo everything that you just said then. I think it's a great approach. The first one is if someone is choosing the plant-predominant style dietary pattern, and of course, that means a foundation of fruits and vegetables and whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, etc. From an animal product point of view, is that something that you've given any thought to? And those calories that are coming from animal products, are there ones that you would recommend over others? Yeah, so there's no one animal product that we would recommend per se. It's really going to depend on your family and what makes the most sense for you. So we've got predominantly plant-based families that eat fully plant-based at home. And then for a matter of convenience, when they're out or at birthday parties or whatever, then they allow their kids to have milk and eggs just because it's it's more convenient to not have to bring their own food to a party, for example. We also think, it, it, again, when it really depends on your individual factors. So if Perhaps we have a child with a soy allergy or a child that has extreme picky eating and they're not able to eat anything out of the legumes, nuts, and seeds category, then maybe they're going to want to incorporate some milk or eggs for that reason to, to make sure they're meeting lysine needs. Or in the case of soy, soy is a, one of the highest containing foods of choline in plants. So perhaps they'd want to include eggs to get their choline needs there. So it kind of really just has to be individualized, both based on your child's eating preferences, but also based on perhaps if there are specific nutrients that you're not able to get on a plant-based diet, where could you find them in certain animal products? But we would never specifically say, this is really healthy, you should incorporate this. My next question on that would be, I mean, we're talking here about appropriately planned diets and, and sort of taking the time to making sure that the diet is nutritionally adequate. But in your experience, if a family is a little less across the information, do you think the plant exclusive diet can make it trickier than a plant predominant diet to, to be nutritionally adequate? I think if a parent is uninformed, there's a lot more room for error on an exclusive plant-based diet. For example, if a parent doesn't know about proper supplementation and doesn't provide their baby with B12 or perhaps a vegan pregnant mom or breastfeeding mom isn't taking B12 herself, the baby could have permanent neurological damage. So these are really harmful acute effects that could happen from misinformation or lack of information. Whereas if they were including some animal products in their diet, then your bases would be covered. Either way, if you're not having enough plants or you're not having animal products, something could be missing if you're not informed. But on the flip side, again, if we're talking about the harms of a meat-heavy diet or a standard Western diet, you're going to see more chronic long-term effects. So there are definitely dangers to any inappropriately planned diet, as we said before. Before we jump into some of the practical side of things, you mentioned USDA before, and that got me thinking now, 
how is this approach, is this approach something the USDA are behind in terms of the latest guidelines and perhaps other guidelines around the world? Yeah, the most recent dietary guidelines for Americans, and I think the past few years as well, are in line with what we're recommending. They are encouraging people to eat more fruits and vegetables, to switch from saturated fat to unsaturated fat, and to reduce meat intake. So this is all in line with that. Additionally, this is the first time the dietary guidelines for Americans have included the zero to two age range. Unfortunately, some of the information that they took out was spun by the beef council to say that babies should be having beef as a first food or it's an ideal first food because of protein and iron. But if you really dig into what they said in this scientific advisory report, they actually said that any source of iron-rich foods is going to be ideal and is going to similarly promote growth regardless of if it is beef or an iron-fortified cereal. And in one part of the report, they actually explicitly said that beef offers no additional benefit to growth and development over other iron-rich foods. So they're highlighting certain nutrients that are important. Again, like we said, it's about the nutrients and making sure you get them versus what you get them from. We get so many questions and concerns about this because I think there is such a a common thought that this, you know, iron fortified cereal must be inferior or it's not food. The the reality is, is that babies, their iron stores start to decrease uh, at around four to six months. And we need to be offering them iron rich foods as part of complementary feeding. The recommended level for babies from, you know, six, seven to 12 months of age is 11 milligrams, which is a lot. That is more than an adult male needs. And we're talking about these, you know, tiny little babies with small appetites. So if we're thinking that, you know, six tablespoons of iron fortified cereal is enough to meet those iron needs, uh, that's a really great place for, for parents to, to offer these types of foods. And we don't think there needs to be any sort of stigma or less than uh, approach when it comes to iron fortified cereal because it can help fill that gap so much. Uh, we do prefer more of an oat or a grain based uh, than rice for the arsenic concerns. But I just really, sort of really want to highlight that, that that's, that's not something that should be considered inferior because the iron need is, is so great. I think this would be a good time to point out that an obsession with the purity of the diet is often where a lot of plant-based parents run into trouble. Some of us got into this pattern of eating because of the health benefits. So we're all kind of a little obsessed with health. But when it comes to our kids, we need to think about the bottom line. Are they growing? Are they getting their nutrients? If that means kind of sacrificing on the so-called cleanest, most pure options, you got to do that. You got to weigh the pros and cons. So cereals, one example, we talked earlier about um, the headlines about vegan babies dying of malnutrition. That's often because these parents were not happy with the formula options that were out there. They were concerned about the ingredients in there and they chose to sacrifice what's known to be an option that provides healthy growth for something that they thought was going to be more pure. And that actually put the babies in danger. So there's lots of instances here, again, why we don't advocate raw and macrobiotic diets. On on iron, am I right that it becomes particularly important to be getting iron through food after six months because breast milk is not a, a great source of iron? Is that right? 
Yeah. Breast milk is very, very low in iron. It's like, you're not going to be able to meet iron needs from breast milk, even though it is highly bioavailable. It's still way too low to to meet kids' needs. Iron is accumulated in utero and babies have stores that last them until the first six months of life. Babies that are fed formula get iron from formula. So if you're not providing iron-rich sources in the diet at six months, your child will very quickly become anemic. And iron deficiency anemia too is, sorry, just a few more things on iron. I just want to say iron deficiency anemia is the most common nutrient deficiency for all kids. So whether we're talking about uh, plant-based kids, whether we're talking about omnivore kids, this is an issue for, for all of them because I think sometimes what gets turned around is this idea that, oh, see, our kids need so much iron. That's why you have to feed them meat. And we see these messages often. They are promoted heavily by the beef industry, but we also see them a lot in the you know dietitian and the, the pediatrician communities. And I always like pointing out that two ounces of beef contains 1.5 milligrams of iron. So you would need to serve your baby 14 ounces of beef a day in order to get enough iron from that. And no one is doing that, right? No one's recommending that. That is that is crazy. No baby's going to be eating that. Um, so to say that meat is sort of this perfect food when it comes to iron alone is just ridiculous. It's the reason, again, that we're so okay with the idea of iron-fortified cereals in various ways. And also, you know, beans actually contain more iron per ounce, but we do have to pair them with vitamin C in order to make them more bioavailable. So we go into to much more detail about this in the book, but I just want for anyone listening to say, oh, maybe I do need to be serving my baby more meat, more beef because of this iron concern. That's, that's really not the answer. Let's walk through a typical journey of nutrition from being born to a toddler. And then through this journey, we can talk about some of these important nutrients that you discuss in your book. So perhaps we start off with a newborn and that stage of breastfeeding. What are the important things to consider at this time? Yeah. And, and you know, we, we do do a deeper dive into all of this in our book, but uh, really when it comes to breastfeeding, uh, we want to ensure that mom is taking enough B12, taking enough DHA, and then the baby really does need to be taking their own source of vitamin D. You know, about 400 IUs per day is the recommended amount. And that's just because You know, once upon a time, we used to get vitamin D naturally from the sunlight, but we don't live sort of those quote unquote natural lives anymore, right? We're indoors a lot. We're not naked all the time outside. Our babies are covered. And so they really need to be getting a source of vitamin D because breast milk really doesn't contain much. At around five to six months, we'll start some type of weaning. So depending on what you're looking to do, whether that's a traditional sort of like spoon-fed approach, whether that's baby-led weaning, babies are sort of developmentally ready around five to six months to start having their own type of food intake. Depending on on sort of like, you know, what, what they're doing, whether you're going to be breastfed or formula, formula is going to be giving the baby all they need. But again, you're going to want to continue that vitamin D. Um, but then once they're weaned, so for breastfeeding, you know, we say until age one, but really you can go as long as you want as long as you and baby like it. But for formula, you you don't need to go after 12 months. I, I will sort of say there are a lot of toddler formulas on the market right now, and they're really not needed. We don't recommend them. The American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't recommend them uh, unless your baby is having some growth issues or isn't really able to meet needs through food. They're just not needed. So formula can stop after 12 months. And then from there, baby's going to need to have their own source of B12 and likely DHA as well 
well, we also want to focus on overall fat. So, you know, babies' fat needs are way higher uh, than adults, about 35 to 40%. And then as they get a little bit older, it drops down, but not much, right? We're talking still about 30% or so from age three, three and on. And then into toddlerhood, you know, same considerations. Are we providing adequate calories for growth? Are we considering adequate fat intake, protein? And then again, some of those supplements that we talked about earlier, vitamin D, B12, maybe DHA. Can we dig into formula a little bit and sort of the considerations around formula, who formula will be appropriate for and who should be considering it? And then within the sort of formula space, there are many different types of formulas. What's the the sort of good information that we need to, to understand in order to make the best choice for our family? We really believe in, in fed is best. And I will caveat this whole sort of topic by just saying that I have so much empathy and, and love for the mama who thought perhaps they were going to be breastfeeding their baby. And then for whatever reason, whether it was structural issues, whether it was just not getting the support they needed, whether they had to go you know, to work early, there are so many reasons why you know, in this sort of day and age, we just don't support women the way that we need to for them to be able to be really successful in breastfeeding. So um, I say that because I know that formula feeding perhaps isn't always the first choice, but I really also want to emphasize that it is completely safe and well-studied. And so if you do have to choose formula because your baby's not getting enough from breast milk, I, I want you to know that choice is okay. And, and really any other option that's out there, like a non-dairy milk or a homemade formula is just not appropriate or okay. The two main choices when you go into the formula aisle is going to be cow's milk or soy milk. Sorry, cow's formula and soy space formula. Not soy milk. Not soy milk. Don't do soy milk. Don't do soy milk. <laughs> and we can we can we can emphasize why on that. Yeah, in a minute. yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 this this tends to become sort of a, an issue sometimes because if you look at the ingredients on some but not all of the cow's based formulas. They'll say things like lactose, some type of added fat, all of the other nutrients, maybe some starch, depending on, on what the formula is. And then when you compare that same soy formula, then you'll see the exact same things, but you'll see an added sweetener. And so we'll get comments that will say things like, I really want a clean uh, soy-based formula that doesn't have any added sweetener. And the reality is, is you're not going to find that. And that's because we're able to take that lactose from cow's milk and be able to add enough of it to make it comparable to human breast milk. So human breast milk is very high in carbohydrates. It's very high in fat. It's, it's fairly low in protein compared to a cow's-based uh, milk. But then a soybean is just not naturally high enough in carbohydrates. And so we've got to add some type of added carbohydrate to that formula mixture to make it comparable to a human-based milk. And, and the reality is that's going to be some type of sugar. So that's why you're going to see either, you know, corn syrup, uh, brown rice syrup is usually, you know, often used, especially in some of the more organic brands. And so I just want to emphasize that if you see that, soy-based formula is completely safe. It is, it is okay to, to give, but you're not going to be able to find an option that, that doesn't contain that added sweetener. Reframe your thinking. It's not, they're not there to sweeten. They're not sweeteners. They're carbohydrates. They're, they're glucose. They're fuel for the body. I think that's important because what you're saying is that the inclusion of that ingredient is necessary. It's energy for your baby. This is sugar, which is, uh, it's a carbohydrate providing energy, which is very important for development. But these ingredients do have a stigma. 
there is a lot of fear about these ingredients. So, so what you're saying is to overlook that, that these are purposefully formulated like that to meet the nutritional requirements of your baby. Well, and the reality is too, you have two choices, right? I mean, at, at this point, especially when we're talking about, you know, America, you've either got a cow's formula or you've got a soy formula. So it's not like another food where you would go perhaps at a different age and say, oh, I have all these different options. I can choose a different brand. That's not available to you. And we really want to emphasize that any kind of homemade formula is not appropriate or is serving on non-dairy milk. The other thing I will say is if you Google vegan baby formula in the United States, toddler formulas will come up. And toddler formulas, there are a lot of options out there that are based in pea protein or don't have any of these added sweeteners. And so parents will say, oh, okay, I'll just serve my child this. A toddler formula is not formulated for an infant's needs and they really can't be interchanged. It's really important. So there is a standard an infant formula must meet is what you're saying in terms of being sold in America and definitely here in Australia. I know that that's the case. The other one outside of cow's milk is goat's milk is often spoken about in the Australian community anyway. Is that one that have you looked into that at all? Yeah, I have. They're not as popular here in America, but I know they're really popular over in Europe as well. And it sounds like Australia. You know, I, I think that for some, so the other thing I will say too, uh, when it comes to a formula is that most formulas are going to be fine for everyone. But some babies might have digestive issues, they may have allergies. And so even if you thought you were going to feed your baby perhaps a soy-based option, if that's not working for your child, if your child is having GI issues, if they're not, you know, be able to digest it okay, you're going to have to choose an animal-based option. And I really want to say to, you know, the vegan parents out there, that doesn't mean that you've failed or that your child is not able to then be on a soy milk after age 12 months. But again, the reality is we don't have a lot of options that are safe and nutritionally appropriate. So if soy isn't gonna work for your baby, we don't recommend soy for preemies, we don't recommend soy for anyone with congenital hypothyroidism, then you're going to need to choose either a cow's or a, you know goat's if it's available to you. There's also a bit of fear around the word soy. And there may be people listening thinking, are you sure you want to feed soy to a baby and maybe they've come across some information or someone's told them something? Is there any truth to this in terms of being worried about soy and feminizing effect in baby boys or any type of endocrine sort of disruption in females? Yeah, we probably get the soy question, I would say, the most, right, Whitney? I mean, this is such a common myth. And actually, we get it quite a bit from other health professionals too. I think this myth persists so much because there is one case study that's out there where an older gentleman, I think he was like 60 or 65, was drinking three quarts of soy milk per day. So we would not recommend that amount for anyone uh, that just displaces too many nutrients in the diet. And he did develop gynomastica or uh, you know ex excess breast tissue. When he stopped drinking all that soy milk, then that condition went away and aha, it must be the soy milk. And that's sort of what was ran for a long time in this sort of like persistent myth that soy is feminizing. When we look at soy formula studies, so the reason that these are so important is because if these concentrated sources of soy, of isoflavins, were going to be a concern, we would see them, given that it's essentially the only food for such a long period of time in early infancy and early development. And the studies that look at babies who have soy formula show no difference 
in sexual development, in any type of endocrine issues, thyroid issues, immune function. And again, we've had these studies for decades too, right? So many individuals and babies are raised on soy formula. And if we were going to see any differences, we, we would see them. Uh, the one thing I will say about soy too that I love to emphasize is that you know, we talked a little bit about the perhaps concerns around boys and there isn't any, but there likely is a benefit to young girls uh, to have soy early in the diet, especially before puberty. And that's because there is an association with intake of soy foods and then a reduced risk of breast cancer later in life. So, you know, I, I think that Whitney and I, we, we serve our kids soy. Uh, that's our preferred option when it comes to a non-dairy milk. We serve our kids tofu, edamame, soy foods often. Uh, I don't think there's any need to be concerned about it. And there is likely that benefit, especially when it comes to young girls. And as I mentioned before, soy is one of the highest containing foods of choline, which it can be a little bit harder to find in a plant-based diet. So it's a rich source of many nutrients that are important for kids. Okay, so that's good to know. And I'm sure many people listening will be pleased to hear that. And I think also definitely in the American Cancer Society guidelines uh, and on their website, they talk about that association that you just mentioned, Alex, and they talk about the mechanism potentially being the fact that those isoflavones bind to the estrogen receptor and block the action of estrogen which is believed to be a part of the development of, of certain sort of hormonal-driven cancers. Yeah, people have referred to uh, isoflavins as estrogen-like molecules when really a better definition would be selective estrogen receptor modulators. In some tissues, they upregulate growth and in some tissues, they, they slow it down. And that's believed to be how they have these beneficial effects for cancer, but also beneficial effects for, say, bone health and, and postmenopause. So I've got a question for you, theoretical question take the ethics out, take the animal welfare, take the planetary health out of the equation here, then also take allergy out of the equation, what would you recommend, a dairy formula or a soy formula? I mean, I think all things uh, taken out, uh, we would recommend likely a cow's based formula, right? And we're talking about the, the lactose in milk, it's going to be much more similar to the lactose in human milk. Perfect. Now that's that's formula, and I think we covered that quite comprehensively. The next thing I think we should probably look at is that stage between, say, five or six months when you, you said food is starting to be introduced and up to 12 months where you said is the minimum amount of time where one should be breastfeeding or having formula. So in that period where they're starting to eat some foods but they're still having formula or breast milk, what's the role of food in that stage? Are they still getting most of their nutrition through the breast milk and formula or are you beginning to also sort of rely on those foods in the diet? Yeah, so so both and. So you're going to be getting a lot, if not most, of the nutrition still from breast milk or formula. Uh, but around that time, we also want to do what we call complementary feeding, right? So whether, again, that's that traditional uh, spoon-fed sort of mom makes the or dad makes the puree and, and feeds it to baby, 
or something called baby led weaning. And we, we go into depth in, in both of these ideas into our book, but it's really this concept that baby is learning not only to get the, the nutrition from these foods, right? We talked about iron. That's one of the things that we're going to have to be getting from food sources, but also learning to feed, right? So we're considering things like allergen introductions in this period. We're considering things like teaching baby to use their different grasp and be able to feed themselves. All of these skills that come with eating. Eating is hard. You know, we babies have to have to learn and to figure that out. They, they learn different textures. They learn what types of food perhaps they like and don't like. There's also, you know, the sort of window of time when babies tend to be more acceptable of uh, bitter foods. So we really want to emphasize, you know, more of those, those vegetables, more of those sort of foods perhaps that aren't necessarily as easily accepted as other options. There's a lot of things going on in sort of that, that six to 12 month range. Can you give me some examples of the foods that you might start with? Yeah, so really our, our big emphasis is iron rich just because of that higher need. Uh, so that can look like a lot of different things, right? If I'm doing a baby led weaning approach, then maybe that looks like a piece of perhaps some sprouted bread with a thin you know, layer of hummus cut into to like strips and baby's able to pick that up and kind of gnaw it and eat it. Uh, we have lots of different ways to getting greens into baby's diet because again, uh, really up until actually about six months and, and, and beyond too, but sort of really this window of opportunity to really sort of heighten baby's acceptance of these more bitter foods. So that could be, you know, perhaps pureeing some some greens and tossing it with some pasta. So baby's able to eat it there. Uh, maybe it's making, you know, some sort of like teething popsicles with, with kale. And we do, we do like these like kale pineapple popsicles baby's able to feed on. So, so lots of different ways and, and perhaps interesting different ways to, to get these kind of foods into the diet. Talk to me about allergens as well. So you mentioned that at this stage, there is some introduction of allergens or certain ones. And in your book, you talk about eight and there's peanuts and some other sort of plant-based ones. And then there's some animal-based ones. Can you walk me through the approach here, what you recommend? Because I understand that this has changed over the years a little bit in terms of what's been recommended to parents. Certainly, I know here in Australia, the the recommendation for peanuts has changed a little bit. Can you speak to that and, and sort of provide some insight into what the current recommendations are? Yeah. So up until actually about a month ago, there were eight known allergens that we were really focused on. But about a month ago, they added a ninth allergen and that's sesame. So prior to that, it was dairy, eggs, fish, and shellfish are the most common animal-based allergens. And then wheat, soy, peanuts, and tree nuts were the most common uh, plant-based food allergens. And for the longest time, it was believed that delaying introduction to these eight common allergens would reduce food allergy. Well, Sometime in the past 10 years, research uncovered the fact that it's actually exactly the opposite. It actually was discovered based on kids in Israel who were eating a peanut snack called Bamba. And they had a much, much lower rate of peanut allergy compared to other kids in a similar population who were not introduced to peanuts earlier. And so that fueled a ton of research in the past 10 years on, on food allergies and basically prompted all of these children's health organizations and allergy organizations to reverse their recommendations. So now it's recommended that peanuts are introduced around the age of six months. And here in the U.S., we have a, a staging for that. So for kids that are at a high risk of food allergy, meaning they have severe eczema or they already have an egg allergy, it's recommended that they're introduced to peanuts between four and 
six months. For kids with mild or moderate eczema, it's recommended that they're introduced to peanuts at six months. And then for kids that don't have any allergy risk, anytime starting about six months. Now, a lot of people have taken this information and said, well, if it works for peanuts, we should probably introduce all of the common allergens right away. The thing is, we really don't have a lot of solid research showing benefits of introducing the other allergens earlier in regards to a reduced risk of food allergy. It's likely that it does, given what we know about peanuts and the way those mechanisms work, but it's not evidence-based. And so, When it comes to giving recommendations to plant-based families, this is another place where Alex and I say it really depends on what you're comfortable with. There is a potential that introducing all of these allergens, including the animal-based ones, will reduce your child's food allergy risk, but we can't say that it will. And additionally, we're also talking about risk factors, not a guarantee. And that gives plant-based parents a lot to think about when, when deciding this. You also have to think about the fact that as as far as peanuts go, you need to be providing peanuts two to three times a week starting at six months, probably up until about 12 months in order to really reap those allergy risk reduction benefits. So if you were a plant-based parent who decided to take this information and say, I'm going to introduce all the common allergens, you have to know that you'd be serving fish or shellfish about three times a week. And we don't have any standards on how much is required to really activate the immune system. And so what's the dose? What's the protocol of doing that? Like if we look at peanuts where you're saying there is evidence, what's the approach to introducing those foods in a way where you can test out the reaction in a sort of safe, controlled way? Yeah. So for peanuts, um, I believe the recommended amount is about two grams of peanuts, of the peanut protein, about two to three times a week. And the way you could do that with a baby is providing something like a peanut powder. We have different brands here in the U.S. that come in the powder form that you can mix with water and you could mix it into a baby's oatmeal. You could provide it on a self-feeding spoon. Um, You could take a thin smear of peanut butter and put it on a little toast strip if you're doing baby lead weaning. you're talking about the first instance where you expose them, that's also going to depend on their risk factors. So if you have a baby that's at a very high risk of food allergy, you may want to do the first introduction at your pediatrician's office. Uh, But if they're not at a high risk and you're doing it at home, we recommend starting out with just a very small amount. Not just we, this is the protocol. You can give them a little lick of it, even just off your finger, wait a few minutes, observe for a reaction, and then give them a little bit more wait a little bit longer until you're actually feeding it. Okay, great. So that's kind of the five to six month up to a year, what we've just walked through. And then at one year is when you're saying you can continue to to breastfeed, probably not recommended. You're not recommending to continue with a formula after one year. What does a plate look like? Describe how you would construct a sort of typical plate for a one-year-old or a two-year-old and the types of food groups that you're thinking about. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. We have a PB3 plate that makes this so easy for parents. Uh, You know, Whitney and I obviously like to spend a lot of time in the details, but we recognize that not everyone wants to do this and we make it so easy for you. So in our book, we have a tear out sheet. It's called our PB3 plate. She's super cute. Uh, You can place on your fridge or wherever you want to sort of get that like reminder of what things to, to consider to add to your child's plate. So 
The three main categories are legumes, nuts, and seeds, grains and starches, and fruits and vegetables. Those are all broken out into thirds. And the reason is because, you know, a lot of plate models for adults perhaps have like fruits and vegetables at a half. And that's just likely too low in the caloric density that we need when it comes to growing kids. So we kind of shift that a third, a third, or a third. The other beauty about this sort of like third uh, plate option of, of all the different categories is if you're choosing options in each of these for your kids' meals, you're likely going to be meeting all of those nutrients that we talk about that are important, right? So if you're choosing things from the legumes, nuts, and seeds category, you're likely going to be getting in good protein, likely some zinc and some iron. If you're choosing things from the fruits and vegetables category, you're likely going to be choosing items that are rich in vitamin C, which help to increase iron absorption. You're likely going to be choosing sources of vitamin A. Uh, and then the grains and starches, you're going to be choosing perhaps even some more protein, zinc and iron, some good calories. Uh, and then in the center of our plate, we have fat and we have iron because those are things that really need to be sort of at the center of, of all of those options. So perhaps if you're serving some black beans, uh, maybe you toss in a little bit uh, so maybe some olive oil or maybe you're making some brown rice and you add in a little bit of olive oil to help to add that that fat in because, you know, plant-based foods, one of the, the benefits, especially when it comes to adults, is the fact they tend to be so, so low in fat. But when it comes to those needs for kids, we really want to ensure that we're giving adequate fat sources in, in all of our foods. And then off to the side of our plate, we have a cup of fortified soy milk. And then we also have recommended supplements. Amazing. Let's dive into fat a little bit because we've mentioned it a few times. And, and I know that you're not recommending a sort of low-fat plant-based diet and your message is more around the fact that kids need good amounts of fats, but the healthy fats that we understand through it, science tend to be more of the unsaturated types rather than the saturated fats that predominate in animal-based foods. So can you sort of reel off the major foods that one would be wanting to consume regularly to get good amounts of these fats into their kid's diet? Yeah, so that would be really any of the plant oils, uh, especially the mono polyunsaturated fat options. Interestingly enough, breast milk is fairly high in saturated fat. So that tells us that saturated fat at some point is important for growing babies. It's why you'll see in various formulas that they'll add in, you know, either a palm oil, sometimes a coconut oil, other types of high saturated fat oils to, to mimic that need in human breast milk. Avocados, most babies love avocados, so that's great. The tricky thing is, especially in some of those whole options, right? So nuts and seeds, you know, we know that they're such wonderful sources of healthy fats. They're also choking hazards when it comes to, to babies. And so we need to serve them in, in age-appropriate ways. So we do a lot of nut butters in either thin amounts or sort of added to things. So, you know, like for my kids when they were younger, I would do a lot of curry sauces, with some like coconut milk and some nut butter sort of like melted into that to get a lot of really yummy fat to whatever sort of grains I was serving. Smoothies are a great way to add in some nut butters. You just don't want to give like a spoonful of nut butter to, to young toddlers or to infants because that can that can be a choking risk. Um, once they're older, of course, they're able to, to have those options. Of course, they're able to have their own whole nuts and seeds too. But you can chop them up. We do a lot of like different kinds of meatballs in our book and recipes on our, our blog and our website uh, using things like walnuts and almonds. We do a lot of like balls um, using things like cashews. So there's a lot of ways to get some of these, you know, healthy plant-based fats into the diet. But we do sometimes have to be a little bit more creative when it comes to, to what our kids are actually able to take and what their, their age-specific needs are. Do you get any 
pushback on oils because I know I have here and there from certain parts of the community that have picked up some information or, or sort of come to believe that oils should be completely avoided and that they're a refined food product. Can you speak to that and your sort of opinion on that? Yeah, we have gotten some pushback. Alex and I believe that oils can absolutely be a, a healthy part of of really any diet and that the breadth of the research shows that certain oils actually have some health benefits, especially because of the phytochemicals found in things like olive oil. But when it comes to our kids, there's just no question with the amount of fat that they need are absolutely a necessary part of the diet, we would say. Yeah, we, we actually do, I think, quite a bit of redirection of education around this point because it is so prolific in, in certain areas of the plant-based community that things need to be oil-free or no oil. And, and if you want to do that as an adult, you know, fine. But really, when it comes to your kids, that, that is not what we recommend at all. And again, we're talking about some of those, those concerns that come up when it comes to well-planned diets and ensuring our kids are getting enough nutrients not get enough fat. You know, we, we need fat for development. We need fat for, for brain development. So we really want to ensure that we're giving our kids ample amounts of, of various fats and, and oils, like Whitney said, great way to, to get them in. It's just such an easy way. And this is one place where plant-based parents may have to kind of restructure their thinking about it. Um, if they're preparing a family meal, they may be used to not using oil, maybe used to trying to keep it low fat and if you're going to keep doing that for yourself, then you might have to make a separate batch of food for your child in order to make sure that they're getting fat throughout their diet. Can we talk a little about DHA too? Because I feel like that's another question that that tends to, to be a concern when it comes to, to fat intake. So uh, DHA accumulation in the brain ramps up in the third trimester and continues the first two years of life. A lot of times plant-based individuals will say things like, oh, well, I eat enough ALA or I'm getting enough of these fats and chia seeds and flax seeds and walnuts. And so therefore, if I just give those foods to my baby, then they're going to be able to have enough DHA. But what we actually know is that, especially when we think about things like pregnancy, breastfeeding, early infancy, that accumulation, that conversion rate is very, very low. And mom's not really passing on, you know, she's only passing on preformed DHA. So if she's supplementing DHA, she's able to pass it on to her fetus or through her breast milk, but she's not going to be able to convert that ALA to DHA and then pass it on. And that's why we recommend supplementing uh, with DHA in pregnancy and also until about the first two years of life. After that, the research is sort of there, possibly, you know, maybe not, um, but uh, we, we say at least until the first two years, we think is a benefit. Okay, great. And if there's anyone listening who is thinking, well, what on earth is DHA? Perhaps we should uh, just quickly define that. DHA is a very long chain omega-3 fatty acid, and it is essential for baby's brain and retinal development, uh, specifically in the first two years of life and in, in the conception period. DHA is the main omega-3 fatty acid found in the brain. So it's so, so important that kids are getting an ample stream of it. Unfortunately, in the diet, DHA is mainly found in seafood. But as Alex said, our bodies can produce some DHA from plant-based sources of an essential omega-3 fatty acid called ALA, which is, again, found in the chia, hemp, flax, a little bit in soy, um, but just not enough, not enough to really meet those high demands during this time of rapid brain growth. Okay. So you recommend that mom is supplementing DHA during pregnancy. And then at what point in time does baby start to supplement? 
We would say that once baby is no longer getting an ample amount of breast milk, so probably once breast milk feeds drop below, say, two feeds a day, or once baby is no longer on a DHA-enriched formula, they should be getting their own source. The research really isn't super strong on the benefits of DHA supplementation in early childhood, but given what we know about DHA accumulation in the brain during the first two years of life, it seems warranted to supplement during that period. Whether you decide to continue supplementing your child from two years or beyond is, is really up to you. The, the research, again, is just is a little bit inconclusive. We do see some studies showing that kids with some cognitive disorders do have lower amounts of, of DHA in their blood stream, but that's not enough to say that that is a causation versus just a correlation. And we do know, we do have data that says that that vegan moms tend to have lower levels of DHA. So, you know, I think really the, the only downside we see is cost. You know, we're thinking about all of the different supplement things that we're talking about, B12, vitamin D, DHA tends to be much more expensive and that can be prohibitive for some people. So we sort of say, you know, if if you can, we, we don't really see a downside, but, you know, we also don't have enough data to say you absolutely must do it. We just say, hey, we know what DHA does. We know what it does for brain and retinal development. It's likely beneficial to, to add it in the supplement. And you raised a good point about formula. Are they all DHA enriched? It's not a requirement here in the U.S., but I think all of them do. Um, they also supplement with arachidonic acid as well. Okay. And and everything that you just said then is consistent with the shares eyes who have come on this show multiple times, neurologists, and, and they have come to the same conclusion that during pregnancy and for the first few years of life that supplementing is definitely during pregnancy, but for kids supplementing during the first few years of life is a good insurance policy and seems that there is some benefit on offer potentially. And then as you described, going into adulthood, there's a little bit less evidence. And interestingly, there's some more stronger evidence in older adults experiencing some mild cognitive impairment and potentially some benefit again uh, there. So that's all very interesting. Can we touch on a few other myths about plant-based diets for kids? I've got a, I've got a few here. Uh, we've definitely tackled a few in, in terms of covering off on soy. What about someone who may think that these types of dietary patterns are restrictive and could be more likely to lead to eating disorders later in life? Is there any research on this or what's your view on that? Yeah, so this theory I think comes about because there is an association with plant-based diets and eating disorders, but it's because a plant-based diet is seen as more restrictive and therefore it's easier to mask, right? So uh, I actually worked at an eating disorder clinic for for years, uh, about a decade or so ago. And then the patients were not allowed to be vegetarian or vegan because it was sort of seen like, no, 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 we're not going to allow you to sort of restrict more options. Uh, And so people sort of have the the chicken or the egg, (laughs) forgive the lack of like a better term of what came first, right? Are you choosing that because you're, you actually want to eat this way? Are you choosing that because you're trying to restrict more foods and have it be seen as quote unquote normal? However, the why matters. So when we dig into sort of the the reasons and, and what the actual literature shows, why someone's choosing this diet really has an impact on whether or not there's going to be perhaps an association with an eating disorder. So if you're choosing a plant-based diet for aesthetics, there is a higher association with eating disorders. But when we see individuals who are choosing this way to eat for health, for environmental, for ethical factors, there's actually no difference. 
Beautiful. And what about protein? I think that's probably something else that others are interested in. And there's this idea out there that perhaps you can't get enough protein. I know we've already spoken about development and growth earlier, but in terms of just looking at protein in isolation, on a plant predominant or plant exclusive diet, can the baby or the toddler get sufficient amounts of protein? Absolutely. And we've, we've seen you myth bust this a lot on your channel as well, Simon, but all whole plant foods, every single one of them, even coffee have protein and all whole plant foods all have all nine essential amino acids. So as long as your child is getting enough calories, they're going to get enough protein and they're going to get enough of the types of protein that they need. This again is why we have the PB3 plate because certain plants can be limiting in a certain essential amino acid. For example, beans are a little bit lower in methionine while grains are a little bit lower in lysine. But research shows that as long as you're eating a variety of protein-rich sources, our bodies are really smart and they can put them all together. So we do emphasize getting your protein from all of the different groups, but as long as your child is eating enough, they're going to be absolutely fine. And what the research shows, again, is that we really don't see protein malnutrition in developed countries at all. And additionally, what we see is that all kids, regardless of dietary pattern, are actually eating way more protein than they need. Vegans and vegetarians typically get about two times the amount of protein that's required for growth and development, while omnivores get an upwards of three times the amount of protein they need. And at the end of the day, too much of anything is actually not a good thing. So there are some studies showing that kids with a really high intake of protein are actually at an increased risk of obesity. So that's another reason why a plant-based diet is likely beneficial is because you're not going to see as much excessive protein intake as you might see on, on a typical Western diet. Okay, so you can get your protein. You just mentioned then as long as you're eating enough calories, and that makes me think that you know, sometimes kids can be picky. And they don't always do as we would like them to do. If a child seems to not be eating enough calories or perhaps is not eating with great diversity, what are your suggestions for parents? Yeah. So the, the one thing that we say, whether it's whatever food we're trying to get our kids to eat more of, is we, we want to offer these foods often and in different ways. So perhaps let's say a child is, you know, really only liking, let's say, the, the grains options, right? So a lot of kids really love like the pasta, the different rices, and perhaps not so keen on things like beans, legumes, and maybe some fruits and vegetables. What I think sometimes a lot of well-meaning parents do is they say, okay, so my child really likes this pasta or this rice. I'm going to give them this option. And gosh, I know they don't like the black beans. I know they don't like the broccoli. I've, I've, I've wasted that food before, so I'm just going to stop giving it to them. And what the research shows is that kids who uh, are not exposed to these foods through periods of picky eating or selective eating don't come back to them. But kids who are exposed to them, even if they're not eating them during those phases, are much more likely to accept them afterwards because they continue to be on the plate. So, you know, we're, we're big proponents of your kid's not going to be able to try it, to like it, to have that be part of their diet if you're not offering it. So, okay, maybe your child doesn't like black bean tacos. Uh, can you, you know, make black bean hummus? If your child isn't into, you know, maybe lentil sloppy joes, can you try those in a lentil salad or making, you know, lentil tacos or, or different ways, right? Because we don't always have to like the, the same food in the same exact way. 
Um, and so it's really about trying to offer them often without pressure, right? So we also want to take away this, this pressure need of saying you have to take a bite, you have to try this. That usually backfires. Uh, picky eating, a lot of it is a battle of control. It's our children becoming more autonomous, deciding what goes into their body. And the moment we give them that sort of power uh, and, and make it a, a power struggle, it's it's going to be more difficult likely. So really sort of taking that 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 power out, out of it, not having pressure, offering it more often is, is really sort of the key when it comes to combating picky eating. Well, you had me at, at lentil sloppy joe, I think. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's making me hungry. It's approaching lunchtime over here. Uh, <laughs> some great tips there. And then in terms of zooming back out and the parent thinking about monitoring growth and development and just knowing that their child is doing well, What's your advice there for that? Yeah, so the biggest thing that we would tell parents to look at is their individual growth charts, right? Just like apples, babies come in all different sizes. So just because your child is on the higher or the lower end does not mean anything is wrong as long as that's according to their growth pattern, right? So if we had a child who was at, let's say, the 70th percentile for weight and height and now all of a sudden is at the 30th or 40th, We'd want to investigate. We'd want to look a little bit further and see what's going on. Same thing if we had a child who was on the 30th percentile and then perhaps all the way is at the 90th. We'd want to figure out, you know, what what else is sort of behind the story. But for the most part, as long as your child is growing according to their growth chart, that's really the best evidence that we have for for children developing appropriately. Uh, The only other sort of like iron uh, measure uh, when it comes to to proper development is an iron test. Uh, So in the United States, it's pretty common for kids to get their their finger pricked at about one years old, uh, which is a simple hemoglobin test to assess iron status. And and so you can do that if you want to sort of, you know, check in and see how your child's doing. But other than that, we, we don't recommend any other sort of like routine blood test like we perhaps would for an adult. Incredible. Well, Whitney and Alex, thank you so much. You're both a wealth of knowledge and this has been extremely informative. I've learned a lot today. Uh, Alex, thank you for joining us for the first time. Whitney, thank you for coming back. You've covered an incredible amount in your book, some of the things that we've touched on today, but also things like navigating daycare uh, and travel, feeding schedules, baby-led weaning. You've got over 50 recipes. It's all in there to to help parents and families who choose a plant-based approach to get the best results possible. So thank you so much for writing the book and putting it out into the world. I encourage all families to definitely go and get a copy. And on that, where can people get a copy and where can people find both of you on the socials if they would like to continue the conversation? Yeah, you can find our book at all of the major retailers. It is out May 18th. And then you can find us, we're pretty active on all social, but really active on Instagram over at Plant Based Juniors. And you can head over to our website, plantbasedjuniors.com for uh, some blogs and a lot of other free goodies. All right, guys, thank you very much. All the best with the book launch and uh, let's do this again. Yay! There we go, friends. I hope you enjoyed that. There really is no denying that getting children to eat more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds is a good thing. As Whitney and Alex described, how this ends up looking as a dietary pattern ultimately boils down to the motivations behind one's dietary choices. 
For some, it may be simply adding more whole plants to their existing diet and cutting back on those ultra-processed foods. For others, it may be a plant-predominant diet, and for others, a vegan diet. The important thing is understanding that no matter what you choose, adequately planning is absolutely key. And of course, to help you do exactly that, I do recommend grabbing a copy of their brand new book, Plant-Based Baby and Toddler. I'll pop the link to that into the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do connect with Alex, Whitney, and myself on Instagram at plantbasedjuniors and at plant underscore proof. We'd love to hear from you. And with that, we made it. Another episode done and dusted and under the belt. Thanks again for hanging out with me. Some may say we've been making a habit of this, a good habit, I hope. Look forward to catching you here next week. Until then, more plants, my friends, more plants.